Welcome back to the last episode of the Anglo-Boer War podcast series with me, your host, Des Latham. Thanks to those who've sent messages of support in the last few weeks and days, the level of interaction has been remarkable from all my listeners around the world. For some, we started this journey together back in September 2017, and here we are, almost 36 months later, and the three years' war has ended. This podcast was always designed to track the war week by week, and it's now time to bid adieu. So yes, it's an emotional time, for this has been an intense three years. And I'd like to thank John, who listened to the series with his father uh, before he unfortunately passed away. John, thanks for sending me notes through this time. And Samuel, who has donated so much to the podcast series, as well as Thomas, who both consistently spoken to me over the past two years and both helped fund the SoundCloud account. Thank you, too, in particular. And Gustav, you've brightened my day with some of your observations and unusual comments. And then Andrew and Martin of History by Hollywood, thank you for sharing your time with me and for your professional help. To Sean, the real professional historian, who is also known as the historian who sees the future and who's taken time to make contact, thank you. And Susan from Canada, who suggested I talk about two veterans of the Anglo-Boer War who went on to great things during the First World War. One is Lieutenant Edward Morrison, who I've mentioned in episodes dealing partly with the Eastern Transvaal. And the second, John McRae, he wrote a poem called In Flanders Field, which features the poppies, and now the reason why people wear poppies for remembrance when it comes to the First World War. Another direct link between this little African fracas and the utter disaster of the Western Front. As we know, the link between the Boer War and the First World War is inescapable. It was 12 years later, which sounds like a long time until you get a little older like me than a dozen years is really a short hop in time. And to Michael, who has listened to the whole series and told me this week he's going back to episode one to start again, if that's not a vote of confidence, then nothing is. Michael, I think you need a medal for bravery. Ryan, who shared such detail, I've stored for a day when our COVID lockdown lifestyle comes to an end. I'll be making that trip to Lindley in the Free State and a few wee drafts of Brandevein and Coke. So let's take a look at some of the characters and where they ended up. Starting with the colossal names like Winston Churchill. I can't really cover his future in much detail after the Boer War because that alone would require literally hundreds of episodes. But I do want to remind all how the experience in South Africa shaped his entire worldview literally until he died. And as you'll hear in a moment, his relationship with former combatants like Jan Smuts became legendary. Arriving as a war reporter and ending the war as an MP, it was the courage Churchill showed during his escape from the Boers that propelled him into Parliament in 1900. His leadership during the First World War included a disastrous Dardanelles campaign, after which he left politics and went to fight on the Western Front. He then became a Conservative Party member in 1925, leaving the Liberal Unionists, and had a famous spat with Indian independence leader Mahatma Gandhi in the late 1920s. The amazing close call both had during the Battle of Spionkorp must be remembered, where Mahatma Gandhi and Churchill hustled past each other unknowingly with Gandhi working as a stretcher-bearer, and Churchill trying to get a message up the mountain to English forces. Gandhi was a medic, Churchill a courier, and also there, Louis Boerter, who led the Boers during that battle. Churchill went on to become probably one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, so too Mahatma Gandhi, who negotiated independence for India. Churchill's speeches and leadership during the Battle of Britain and the Second World War, the lonely voice at the time, are venerated to this day, whatever revisionist historians want to write. Gandhi, who started the stretcher-bearer unit, was a lawyer 
and he left his tailored suits behind, and then South Africa behind in 1914, leading to the Salt Satyagraha non-violent protest in 1930 in India. He tried to stop Indian troops from fighting in the Second World War and then secured independence for India in 1947, but was eventually shot dead by a Hindu nationalist in 1948. Gandhi had preached tolerance for Christianity and Islam, and that was too much for some Hindu fundamentalists. A great man killed by his own for wanting to treat others with respect. It's shameful how often this happens in our world. So then, what of the Boers? Well, Louis Boerter became South Africa's first Prime Minister once the country had been created in 1910. Jan Smuts was quite happy for Boerter to take the mantle of Prime Minister partly because of the Battle of Spionkop, which cemented Boerter's fame forever, and partly because Smuts was much younger. Boerter was also liked by even his enemies and was a popular leader, eventually dying in office in 1919, and that's when Smuts took over as Prime Minister. Smuts was instrumental, along with Louis Boerter, in the decision for South Africa to enter the First World War on the side of Great Britain and the Commonwealth against Germany, which infuriated many of the Boer veterans. I'll talk about two in a little while, De Wet and De La Rey. But it was the white miners' strike in 1914, which was set off partly by the increased numbers of black labourers working on the mines, that led to a final split with his former Boer colleagues like Herzog, De Wet and Stein. Smuts ordered police to open fire on striking white miners, killing 22. During the First World War, Smuts led British forces in East Africa. Then in 1917, he travelled to London to join the British War Cabinet. It was here he was tasked with analysing Germany's Zeppelin attacks on British cities, releasing what's known as the Smuts Report into air services, which led to the air wing of the army being detached, and voila, the Royal Air Force was born. He assisted Allenby in the Mideast campaign during the Great War and drew up plans for the invasion of Palestine, which ended in success for the military driving out the Turks. During the Paris Peace Conference after the Great War, Smuts asked the British and French to consider limiting German reparations because he believed them too onerous. His partners didn't listen, which we now know was a big mistake. Back home, after the shock election lost to the Nationalist Party in South Africa in 1924, Smuts spent time as a botanist, and pursued his love of mountaineering. In 1934, he gave a famous speech warning that the Treaty of Versailles was going to cause another war. By 1939, he'd been enticed back into politics in South Africa and joined a coalition government under J.B.M. Herzog, then helped defeat the nationalists in Parliament who wanted South Africa to stay out of the war. In 1941, Smuts was made a field marshal in the British Army, which must surely be one of the strangest turnarounds in history. The man who killed so many British soldiers was now a field marshal in the British Army. Shortly after his appointment, Winston Churchill's private secretary, Colville, put Smuts's name forward as a replacement for Churchill as British Prime Minister should the cigar-smoking V for Victory leader be killed in the Second World War. A Boer could have become Great Britain's Prime Minister had Churchill died in the Second World War. This is strange but true. There are, of course, the dark sides to Smuts. He was a proponent of racial segregation his whole life, believing races should be kept apart, and in 1929 he justified the separate institutions for blacks and whites in ways which echo the later practices of apartheid. Yet, nuance and history are implacable bedfellows and issue oblivious, because he also didn't believe in black ghettos. So it emerged that Smuts was not openly hostile to blacks like the Nationalist Party members who wanted a kind of 
social engineering scorched earth policy based on a twisted version of Aryan mythology. He practiced what could be called a paternal attitude towards black majority, believing they were like children who needed guidance. That sounds extreme these days, but those were those days. In 1947, he supported the Fagan Commission finding that black South Africans should be made full citizens of South Africa with limited property rights, counter to the wishes of many Afrikaners who believe blacks should not be allowed any property rights inside the provinces of South Africa. This made Smuts even more unpopular among some of his former Boer commando members, and D.F. Malan won the next election as the leader of the National Party. Smuts warned at the time that the idea of forcing blacks into Bantustans was lunacy. He said, The idea that the natives must all be removed and confined in their own kraals is, in my opinion, the greatest nonsense I have ever heard. In 1948, Smuts was made the Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, the first person from outside the UK to hold that position, which he continued to hold until his death by heart attack on his farm in Irene outside Pretoria in 1950, aged 80. Irene was also one of the locations of a concentration camp during the Boer War, as we know, so another irony of the life of Jan Smuts. A great man, steeped in tradition, gifted intellectual, tough as steel, wrought by time. So what happened to the great general Christian de Wett? In 1902, he travelled to Europe with other Boer generals following the cessation of hostilities. Then in 1907, he was elected a member of the first parliament of the Orange River Colony and was appointed Minister of Agriculture. In 1909, he was a delegate to the Closer Union Convention, but in 1914, he joined the Maritz Rebellion and was eventually defeated at a battle at Mushroom Valley near Virginia in the Free State, facing his former ally, General Louis Boerta. The vet was taken prisoner after his commander was defeated and uttered his famous remark, Thank God it is not an Englishman who captured me after all. He was sentenced to six years in jail and fined 2,000 pounds, then was released after one year. Always an honourable man, de Wet ceased his political and military activities and eventually died on his farm in February 1922, after which he was given a state funeral. Smuts cabled his widow, saying, A prince and great man has fallen today. De Wet is buried next to President Stain and Emily Hobhouse in Bloemfontein at the foot of the memorial to women and children who died in the concentration camps. And Emily Hobhouse, who fought so tirelessly for the rights of women and children in these camps, returned to South Africa, where she worked on rehabilitation and reconciliation efforts. But she suffered from ill health and returned to England in 1908. In 1913, she travelled back to Bloemfontein for the inauguration of the National Women's Monument, a trip that was delayed in Beaufort West because of her failing health. She made it to the memorial and gave a speech which called for reconciliation and goodwill between all races, after which she met Mahatma Gandhi. Hobhouse opposed the First World War and ended up starting a movement to feed women and children war refugees of Central Europe. She became an honorary citizen of South Africa, and her best friend, President Steyn's wife, R.R. Steyn, then secretly collected £2,300 for Hobhouse in order for her to buy a house at St. Ives in Cornwall. It's now part of the existing Portminster Hotel. Hobhouse died in 1926. Her ashes were sent to South Africa, where they were placed in a niche in the National Women's Monument alongside President Steyn and De Wet. A perfect resting place, most would say. However, the end for General Coeur de la Rey was not as romantic.
After the war, Delaray travelled to Europe with Louis Butter and Christian de Vett to raise funds for the impoverished Boers whose families and farms had been devastated. In 1903, he was in India and Ceylon persuading the prisoners of war there to take the oath of allegiance and return to South Africa. Meanwhile, his really incredible wife, Yakuba, toiled along on the family farm without him. Finally, he returned to his farm, Yakuba, and his children. By the way, Yakuba spent most of the war trekking in the felt with her children and a few faithful servants in what was itself a remarkable story as she managed to evade the British by remaining hidden in deep gorges or moving too quickly to be captured. In 1907, de la Rey was elected to the colonial Transvaal Parliament and was one of the delegates to the National Convention, which led to the Union of South Africa in 1910. He became a senator and supported Louis Boerter in his attempts to unite Boer and British. An opposing faction led by Herzog then emerged and wished to establish Republican government as soon as possible and resisted cooperation with the British. De La Rey was moved to action when the serious violence of 1914 when white miners in Johannesburg clashed with police, as we've heard. De La Rey commanded the government forces when the strikers were put down. Then a dangerous atmosphere formed, one he was deeply uncomfortable about. Yeah, he was, acting as a policeman for the empire and the capitalists who owned the mines, the very same people who'd fomented the entire Boer War. So, on the 15th of September 1914, old comrade General Bayers resigned his commission and sent his car to fetch Delaray from Johannesburg to drive to Pretoria, saying they should talk. The two generals talked and then set out that night for Potrestrum military camp, where General Kemp had also resigned. They encountered several police roadblocks, but refused to stop. The roadblocks had in fact been set up to capture the Foster Gang, a group of criminals who operated around Johannesburg between July and September 1914 and included William Robert Clem Foster, his wife Peggy Foster, John Maxim and Carl Mazar. Later, after a standoff with police, the gang members and Foster's wife all committed suicide. Delaray and Bayers drove into one of these roadblocks where unfortunately the local police could shoot straight. Eventually, at Langlachter, south of Johannesburg, the police fired on Delaray's speeding car and a bullet hit him in the back, a mortal wound. His last words were, Dit is rock. It's a hit. Delaray was buried in Lichtenburg, a courageous man steeped in 19th century mores and values galloping about the felt, who died in a most modern way, shot in the back by a policeman as he drove through a roadblock. Many Boers were convinced he'd been deliberately assassinated, while others could not believe that he would have joined a rebellion, breaking his oath. But Bayers admitted the plan was to coordinate the simultaneous resignation of all senior army officers and protest at the attack on German Southwest Africa by Boerter and Smuts. The theory of a government assassination holds sway to this day in South Africa with many dark theories that continue to swirl about, driven at times by popular culture and music. Not long after Delaray's funeral, the short-lived Maritz rebellion broke out where Devet, Bayers and Maritz led a commander on the border of Southwest Africa. It was back to the struggle for these men. Kemp also joined, but most of the army remained loyal and the rebellion was swiftly put down by Boerta and Smuts. The rebels were pardoned by Boerta in the interests of national reconciliation. What of Lord Roberts? He became the last commander-in-chief of the forces in January 1901 after arriving back in England from South Africa. He introduced things like the short magazine Lee Enfield Rifle and the 18-pounder gun and provided improved education and training for soldiers. 
and served as commander-in-chief for three years before the post was abolished. He literally went to work one day in 1904 and found he didn't have a job. Roberts also became a leading proponent of national conscription, something his replacement in South Africa, Kitchener, also supported. Eventually, Roberts died of pneumonia aged 83 at Saint-Omer in France on the 14th of November 1914 while visiting Indian troops fighting in the First World War. His body was taken to Westminster Hall where he lay in state, one of only two people who were not members of the royal family to do so during the entire 20th century. The other was Winston Churchill. So, both veterans of the Boer War ended up receiving unique honours from their nation. Roberts was eventually buried in St Paul's Cathedral. Let's turn to the Scotsman, Douglas Haig. When the First World War broke out, he helped organise the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, commanded by Field Marshal Sir John French. Haig was appointed aide-de-camp to King George V in February 1914. During a royal inspection of Aldershot, Haig told the King that he had grave doubts about the evenness of Field Marshal French's temper and military knowledge saying these doubts emanated from watching French during the Boer War. Haig was with troops at Le Havre and was involved in fighting at Mont, Marne, Ypres, and during the 1915 Spring Offensive. Eventually, he replaced his Boer War colleague, Field Marshal French, in December 1915. French had been an unmitigated failure. Haig went on to lead the British forces at the Somme and in 1917 was made a Field Marshal. He died in 1928, aged 66. Haig was buried at Dryburg Alley in the Scottish borders, the grave marked with a plain stone tablet in the style of the standard headstones of the Imperial War Graves Commission issued to British military casualties in the First World War. He was praised as the man who won the First World War, and his funeral was a huge state occasion. However, after his death, he was increasingly criticised for issuing orders which led to excessive casualties of British troops under his command on the Western Front, and he earned the nickname the butcher of the Somme. And Lord Kitchener? Well, he eventually landed where he had always wanted to be, India, as the commander-in-chief, and arrived just in time to take charge during the January 1903 Delhi Durbar, which was an imperial-style mass assembly. Kitchener set about reorganising the Indian army before he returned to Britain at the outset of the First World War, when he was appointed Secretary of State for War. He ordered a massive recruitment campaign featuring his face and a finger pointed to the viewer. It's been parodied, but everyone knows that poster. And in the end, the four years the war lasted vindicated his decision to introduce conscription. In June 1916, Lord Kitchener travelled to Scapa Flow aboard HMS Oak before transferring to the armoured cruiser HMS Hampshire for a planned diplomatic mission to Russia. Just before half past seven in the evening, steaming for the Russian port of Archangel during a Force 9 gale, Hampshire hit a mine and sank west of the Orkney Islands. Only 12 on board survived, 757 died. Kitchener was last seen standing on the quarterdeck during the 20 minutes that it took the ship to sink, having taken the trouble to dress in his finest uniform. His body was never recovered. General Haig received the news of Kitchener's death via a coded German signal that had been intercepted. Another of these ironies. The news of Kitchener's death was received with shock all over the British Empire. A man in Yorkshire committed suicide. A sergeant on the Western Front was heard to exclaim, Now we've lost the war! We've lost the war! And a nurse wrote home to her family that she knew Britain would win as long as Kitchener lived, and now he was gone. How awful it is! A far worse blow than many German victories. So long as he was with us, we knew that even if things were gloomy, 
His guiding hand was at the helm. Kitchener of Khartoum was gone. And then what of the narrator in the series, Denise Reitz? His father, Reitz Sr., had handed his rifle and goods over to the British after the war at a ceremony in the eastern Transvaal. When my father's turn came, he handed over his rifle to the officer in charge, but refused to sign. That was the document declaring he would agree to become a citizen of the British Empire. Reitz supported his father's position, although he says, I had no very strong convictions on the subject, but I had to stand by him. The Honourable Son, although he admitted that he wanted to see more of the world and not remain in South Africa, so being threatened with expulsion was not exactly the end of his world. Reitz Sr. sorted out his documents, and he and two of his sons were shipped out of Africa via Delagoa Bay. Danes Reitz parted ways with his father at this point. Reitz Sr. said he wanted to head to the land of plenty, the United States of America, which is where he sailed. Two other brothers were in Holland after leaving a prison camp in India, and another at Bermuda Prison Camp, waiting release. So Danes Reitz and one of his brothers sailed with a French vessel to Madagascar, where he found work leading ox wagons from the capital Antananarivo to the coast and back. It was like going to war again, but all went quietly, and we saw much that was of interest. Lakes and forests, swamps teeming with crocodiles, and great open plains. But for all the beauty, Reitz quickly became homesick, eking out a living, conveying goods between Maharasa on the east coast and Antanarivo. Hard work in dank, fever-stricken forests and across mountains sodden with eternal rain. And in his spare time he wrote his memoirs, which I've used extensively for these last three years, as you know. So yes, folks, this is at the end of the series. Please look out for my new podcast series, which starts next week called The Battle of Stalingrad, and it'll run until next year, February. I'll also host a podcast called Plane Crash Diaries, which is doing quite well, although the subject matter is very different from the AB war. And there's another project which I've begun to work on with veterans of the South African border war, which is to kick off in 2021. As a veteran of that border war, I've been talking to other vets of all types and most feel it's time to tell that tale from all sides. For all of those I've not named and yet been part of this podcast series, please forgive me for not naming you individually. I'm approaching 250,000 listens and tens of thousands of followers and it would be very hard to list all of you. I thank you for supporting me. And just one more thing. On the matter of filthy lucre, I'm afraid, on the website abwarpodcast.com, I have a PayPal button. This is something I don't really like doing, but the SoundCloud account I have costs quite a bit, and I'd like the series to be archived for posterity. So if you can spare a few dollars, I would really appreciate your support. It's abwarpodcast.com. My friends, time is up. Until we meet again, goodbye. Daar in my red zal ik ooit weer kan zeil, my schaad het ek weer gekreeg. En zonder gedaan langs die moeier, die is de waal, het sê voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng my terug na die oudransval, daar waar my sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woont my sari maar in. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.